So what do you remember from your past life? <laughs> Almost seems like everybody remembers the same thing. They were all princesses in Egypt. <laughs> the first thing we know about past lives is that we don't remember them. Now this can be attributed to simply the uh, trauma of birth because the soul comes with its memories. The soul certainly doesn't forget. So why don't we know our past lives? It could be the trauma of birth, because the past life that we're all very familiar with is the immediate past life. What is everyone's immediate past life? Nine months in the womb. During those nine months, the soul experiences many things, and they're almost all positive. The soul is taught the entire Torah during those nine months, and that can't be bad. And yet, the minute we're born, we forget it all. So it's not surprising that we don't remember the time we spent in heaven when we can't even remember the time we spent in the womb. So there are people who argue or assume that there is no memory and that the fetus in the womb does not think or feel or experience. And so there's nothing to remember. And all of life begins at birth. And even that we don't really remember very well, do we? Comedian says he found the diary that he had been keeping since the day he was born. The entry on the first day, still tired from the move. <laughs> Second day, everybody talks to me like I'm an idiot. We don't remember even being born. But we've now discovered that it's not true that the fetus has no thoughts or feelings or experiences. The exact opposite is true. The fetus is an entire, complete human being. And the only thing it's missing is the power of speech. Because there's nobody to talk to anyway, so why should he have? So the only thing a fetus is missing is articulation. But every experience, every emotion, every thought, every idea, every conversation, it hears it, it remembers it, it understands it until the moment of birth. And then it's all erased. So tradition has it that an angel comes along and makes you forget. But the birth trauma itself is enough to make you forget. The transition, the change from in life in the womb to life outside the womb, that is shocking enough, traumatic enough to make you forget. In fact, we really need to explain or understand how it is that that trauma doesn't destroy us altogether. How come it doesn't cripple us more than just erasing our memory? Now, not everybody's memory is erased equally. There are people who do remember being born, and they remember being fetuses. Some of those people are tzaddikim, in whom there is no forgetting. They forget nothing. They remember being in heaven, they remember leaving heaven, they remember being conceived, they remember being a fetus, and they remember being born. They forget nothing because forgetfulness comes from unholiness. In holiness, nothing is forgotten. Then there are other people who are not tzaddikim, but they also have some memory, and those memories torture them. 
because I guess we're not supposed to remember. So there are people who have this uh, ESP. They remember things, they see things, they know things that other people don't know. And it disturbs them. It's a little too much. And they'd rather not know, but they can't block it. They can't stop that flow of information. But as a rule, we forget. We forget those wonderful months, which at ta in, in different places in Torah, those nine months in the womb are actually referred to as heaven. So when it says the soul before it came down to earth while it was in heaven, it could be talking about those nine months in the womb because they're heavenly, even though it's very physical, but it's heavenly. Would there be a virtue in remembering our past lives or discovering our past lives? Obviously not. If there were virtue to it, then God would allow us to remember or cause us to remember or help us to remember. And he hasn't done any of the above. So the retrieval, going back through regression or whatever it is that they use to get in touch with a past life, it doesn't really do any good. It's fascinating, of course. It's a little speculative. You can never be quite sure that what you're retrieving is true and not imagination. But all in all, even if the retrieval is correct, what does that do for you? So, for example, a person has a problem with, um, let's say, stinginess. A person is very stingy, can't share, can't let anybody into their life. So they regress through whatever, and they get in touch with a past life. And in a past life, they had the same problem. So what does that do for you? It's fascinating, but it doesn't make you any more generous. It doesn't help you be any more generous. It just tells you that you've had this problem for a long time, which could actually be even discouraging. But knowing that there were past lives without remembering them is a very important piece of information because it does help us be moral and godly and good. Because knowing that there's a past life is all part and parcel of knowing that there is a mission. See, in Buddhism, if you know a little bit about Buddhism, reincarnation is an automatic process. Everything is recycled. Everyone is recycled, constantly, endlessly, pointlessly. If you want to get out of that, if you want to stop being recycled endlessly and pointlessly, then you have this discipline of meditation and so on, where you can attain enlightenment, and then you won't be reincarnated anymore, and the cycle will stop. This is probably part of the philosophy that Avraham, on his own, discovered before God spoke to him. See, God first spoke to Avraham when Avraham was 75 years old. Prior to that, he had discovered God on his own, was worshiping God as best as he knew how, but he hadn't heard from God. When Avraham was 75 years old, God appeared to him and said, I really like what you've come up with. That's great. But let me tell you my side of the story. 
let me tell you what it looks like from where I sit. And he said, leave your place, meaning your philosophy. Leave your father's home, meaning your habits. As good as they are, as wonderful as they are, and you were willing to die for them because it was monotheistic. It's wonderful, but come to the land that I will show you and be my special family or people. And that's when God told him the rest of the story. So if Avraham had discovered that souls are reincarnated, God now let him know how, when, and why. We have a Sunday night program for VIPs that you might be interested in. It's informal, it's questions and answers, it's conversation. It's really relaxed, it's really pleasant, enjoyable, informative, and uh, kind of community-like. It's a Sunday night program, there's a um, Wednesday morning program for the VIPs, and there's a Wednesday night program. All of it, just conversation, casual, laid back, unscripted. So join us, take a look, click uh, the link below and see which, which of the three suits you best and join us for some enjoyable conversation. And what God told him is, souls are not reincarnated pointlessly and endlessly. Every soul has a mission. There's a certain amount of goodness that each soul is supposed to contribute to this world. And all the contributions together make the world perfect. But if a soul does not make its contribution or complete its contribution in one lifetime, it is given a second lifetime to finish the job. It is not pointless or endless. It's purposeful, it's planned, and it has an end because every soul will fulfill its purpose. If not in one life, then in two. And if not in two, then in three. But it will fill its quota of goodness. So the way it works is something like this. It's very unusual for a soul to spend 80 years or 100 years on earth and not accomplish at least part of its mission. Very unusual, very unlikely. Therefore, when a person dies, that part of the soul that had accomplished that amount of goodness or that area of goodness. So, for example, the person was successful in all matters of kindness. Charity, hospitality, friendship, was very good at that. So that quality of his soul, let's say the chesed of his soul, had achieved all it was meant to achieve. But on the other hand, when it came to um, when it came to perseverance and determination and strength and discipline, it didn't do such a good job. So what happens? The chesed of his soul, that dimension of his soul, remains in heaven because it is complete. But the gvura of his soul, the uh, severity. The, the strong force in his soul, which did not complete its mission, it will come back for another life. And of course, it'll have the same problem or the same challenge. 
because it's meant to fix what it didn't fix before. So it has to face the same issues, deal with the same problems, and get it right the second time around. So the person will be born again. He will again be weak when it comes to discipline and to perseverance, and he will have a chance to get it right. When he gets that right, it's still possible that a third part of his soul had not accomplished its quota of goodness. Let's say, for example, um, influencing others, which is the attribute of malchus. Or he didn't get married and didn't have children and didn't contribute to the next generation, which would be yesod. So again, the part of the soul that finished its job will stay in heaven. The parts of the soul that didn't will come back until the entire soul is completed. At this point in history, pretty much the close of history, we have all been here before. And that's important to know, even if we don't know where our past life was and what our name was in that life. But knowing that we were here before, knowing that we have accomplished a great deal of our quota, that's important to know. Knowing that we are here this time around to put the finishing touches, to reach a little degree of perfection so that the world will be perfect and Mashiach could come, th this is important information because it helps us appreciate and understand the possibility that one mitzvah can do the trick because it could be that one mitzvah that your soul was missing or is missing. And therefore it is realistic to think that one more mitzvah and the whole world will change. Because it's very possible that the entire world is waiting for your soul to finish its job. And your soul needs only one mitzvah to finish itself. So if you don't get on with that mitzvah, everybody's going to be angry at you. <laughs> the whole world will complain to you that you're messing everybody's life up by not doing your mitzvah. There was a writer who um, spent some time in Crown Heights, a psychologist. And one of the conclusions, one of the uh, discoveries that she made is that here are a group of people, and she was focused mainly on the teenagers, here are a group of teenagers who, whatever their personalities and whatever their issues in life, they all have one thing in common. They are all firmly convinced that what they do, the way they behave, how they act, will either make the world perfect or make the world worse. That is a very powerful awareness. It's a very empowering awareness. Your actions are not insignificant. They can determine the outcome, the result, for the entire universe. That's pretty awesome. And some of the people, some of the teenagers, labor under that awareness. It's too heavy for them. They don't want it. They want to just relax and have some fun and not care whether they're fixing the world or destroying it. But they can't. They can't. They've got the message. They feel the importance. And as much as they try to dismiss it, they really can't. Because what you do does make a difference. So knowing that there were past lives and that we are here for the third or fourth time around does make a difference because it explains things. It helps us understand it also explains a mysterious phenomenon, I think,
that is unique to our generation. It's called chronic fatigue. Nobody understands where the chronic fatigue comes from. Knowing that you've been here before, this is your fourth lifetime, of course you're tired. It's not a disease. We're exhausted. We wake up exhausted. We're born exhausted. It's like, oh no, not again. And that also adds to the urgency of getting it all right so that we can stop with this already and have the world reach its perfection. And then what happens when the world reaches its perfection? All the finished parts, the completed parts of our soul, come back to earth in their original body. So now you have multiple personalities, which is not a problem because each one has its own body, so they're not competing. So there'll be four of you, four of your mother, four of your father, four of your sister, four of your brother, four of your... It'll be a strange world, but it'll be a very good world. There's a, a classical story that is told about a guy who comes into a uh, tavern, a kretschme in Russia. He orders a drink, and he's about to drink it. He's got it to his lips. And uh, a hand restrains him. And he turns around, and it's the Balshemtiv. And the Balshemtiv says to him, Before you drink that, I want to tell you a story. He says, Everything in this world has a divine spark. In a human being, it's a full blown soul with a complete personality and so on. But in everything, there is a spark. Every grain of wheat has a spark. And that spark is aware of its purpose or usefulness in this world. So there's this grain of wheat which the farmer has in his basket and he's walking down the uh, furrows, down the plowed field, and he's scattering these seeds, these kernels, planting them in his field. And every kernel is praying that it be planted properly and not be left in the basket and discarded. So the seeds' prayers are answered and he is planted. He falls on the field, in the furrow, in the plowed part. Other seeds are not so lucky. They fall on the unplowed part and just spoil on the surface of the ground. But the seed that made it into the furrow is now covered by the soil and now it is praying with all its might that nothing should step on them, that an animal or a cartwheel should not crush it. And its prayers are answered and it starts to take root. Now it's praying for rain and its prayers are answered and the rain comes. Now it's sprouting. Now it's praying with all its might that an animal doesn't eat it. And no animal eats it. And it turns into a stalk of wheat. Now the farmer comes and he's harvesting. Many of the stalks are left behind, are lost, are discarded. He's praying with all his might not to be discarded. He's not discarded, he makes it into the bundle. Now bundles are left or forgotten. 
So the kernel of wheat now is praying that its bundle not be left. And it's not. It makes it onto the wagon. And on the wagon, on the way to the granary or whatever it's called, many of the kernels get knocked off and are lost along the way. And this kernel is praying not to be lost. And it makes it to the silo and from the silo to the, to the mill. And it is ground. And each step of the way it prays not to be lost. It finally makes it into the vat. And it's becoming vodka. Now it's in a bottle, and it's sitting on the shelf of a kretschma. And a Cossack comes in and orders a drink. And this kernel of wheat is praying, please, not me, not me. And then a Jew comes in and orders a drink. And the kernel in that bottle is praying, yes, me. And it gets poured into your glass, and you are about to drink it without a bracha. Had you done that, you would have ruined, in the last moment, the entire saga, the entire drama, all the prayers, all the hopes, all the history of this grain of wheat that wanted only that somebody should make a bracha on it. And suddenly the man remembered that he had yardsight for his father that day. <laughs> 